This week, I saw one of those graphics that you see on the internet, on social media, passed around. They're a dime a dozen, and it was something I almost scrolled right past, and for some reason, I stopped and looked more closely at it, and it became something that I thought about for quite some time. It was a, a graph, a line graph with two different lines, and it said, this tells us a lot about the problem in our society. Not really well worded, but the graph itself spoke many words. It had been made in Google Books, and I don't know if you're familiar with Google Books. They've taken basically all the books ever, and they've digitized them and put them in a database, and you can go on there, and you can do searches, and it will show you how often different words and different phrases have been used. And on this particular graph, they had done a search for two different terms that had two different lines, trend lines. One of them was the word rights. One of them was the word duties. And the two words were right together as if they were always used in the same breath or, or in a pair from 1700. That's right. It went from 1700 to 2010. From 1700, climbing higher, higher, higher together all the way up through about 1800. Then it took a slight dip, but both of them together went all the way down to about 1900. And, and they were, you know, in the middle somewhere. And then in about 1950, there was a divergence, small at first, and then growing more and more and more. And in the, in the graph, you could see as clear as day that rights went up, 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 skyrocketed. And duties went down to almost zero. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, that does seem very telling. And then my first thought was, hold on a minute. What probably happened is people stopped saying duties for a number of reasons. It just sounds stilted, it sounds old-fashioned. You know, junior hires laugh when you say duty, right? And instead, maybe they started saying responsibilities. So I did my own Google book search and it came up almost the same. I put rights, duties, responsibilities, and responsibilities also went down on almost the same trend line. And then I thought, well, there's gotta be something more. And the optimist in me said, probably what's going on, starting at 1950s-ish and going forward is people, <laughs> Excuse me. People are talking about rights more and more because they're not just thinking of their own rights, but other people's rights. We care now about the rights of this person and that person and more. And so we're kind of thinking about the idea of rights. And I, I think that's true and that's wonderful. But whatever the case, the, the idea of our particular responsibilities, our duties that go along with our rights, certainly these things have become kind of unhinged from one another, no longer a couplet. And one of them, rights, is becoming more and more popular, while the other, our duty, is becoming less and less popular. What we are due versus what we are required to do are now two very different things, and we would very much rather talk about the former than the latter. And as believers, this can't be an option for us. As those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're called, when necessary, even to put aside our rights in order to carry out our duty, this great commission that we've been given to bring the gospel to all people and make disciples of all nations. Our mission to win others, even our enemies, to Christ Jesus with the gospel. And so when Paul is talking about this compulsion he feels to preach the gospel to everyone, and he says that he has a, a, um, a burden for people, for the lost, we understand that. That's a duty that you have. You feel that. But here in this text, when he talks about how he's been given a great gift to preach the gospel, 
the grace of God has been given to him to preach the gospel, well, we understand that too. As Christians, our rights and our duties are kind of blended and merged together, ever bowing to the glory of God. What we do, we do to his glory. It's our right, it's our duty, and we do it freely and gladly because we were created to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And this becomes so clear in this passage today, in Ephesians chapter 3. We begin today with verse 7, and I'm really going to start with verse 8. And here we read that Paul describes basically his job as an apostle to go out and bring the gospel to people, not in the kind of terms we might be tempted to describe them if it was our job. Not saying, listen... I'm being persecuted, and at the same time, I have to argue with hard-hearted Pharisees and stump-worshipping Gentiles, and none of them even want eternal life, even though I tell them that it's free, and then they beat me and throw me in prison. It's an awful job. No, instead, as he reflects on his time as the apostle to the Gentiles, he says, to me, this grace has been given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the grace given to me. I get to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And when I think about how we in the church today approach evangelism, and then I read a passage like that, I think, man, we are underselling this gospel thing. I mean, what, what is more compelling? Come here, I got four spiritual laws for you. I just take two minutes. I'll run through them real quick. Or, hey, come here, I got a cute little diagram for you. Not unlike what I might use to try and get you into a multi-level marketing scheme with me. Or, I have unsearchable riches for you in Christ. I think that we often miss the majesty and the infinity and the, and the amazing nature of the gospel. That we are jars of clay or earthen vessels. We're just mortal people, but we're walking around in those earthen vessels. You never know it. It is a treasure. Our duty, our gift. There's this, this mismatch here. It's like when you, you, you get a bank statement and there's a bank error, but it's in your favor. Only in this case, it was no error. We were given that mismatched grace, that blessing, that gift on purpose. And now we get to share it. It's a grace given to us. And yet, we're so often reluctant to do so. Even the term evangelize or evangelism, it comes with baggage that it probably shouldn't. I hear that term, I immediately can smell like the mimeograph machine, where they churned out all the, the materials and, and handouts and things. I feel a little gnaw of guilt in my, in, my, in my tummy, like, oh no, I'm not doing enough of this. I gotta get on that, that's my duty. I mean, it might be hard and it might be awkward, but you gotta suck it up and do it for Jesus. But the word evangelize literally is the Greek word euangelizo, which means to communicate good news. That shouldn't make us feel all full of, of pins and needles or tied up in knots. That shouldn't make us think, oh, this sounds boring or this sounds like a job. To communicate good news, that's a privilege. Can you imagine if you, if you got hired at a company and you either got to tell people, you get a raise or I'm sorry, we have to let you go? And they say, you know what? You get to be the you get a raise guy. Wouldn't that be great? Spending your whole day telling people good news and then having them hear it because of you? What if you, what if you learned that today was the day they'd found the cure now for the coronavirus and this whole thing's over? And somehow you're the first one to know. And they say, hey, it's been under wraps until now, but go ahead and tell anyone you want. 
Would you think, oh, I don't know, I'm kind of in my own head here. I need to stop and do some training and figure out how am I going to communicate. No, you just, you go tell everyone. Would some people think that you were wrong or lying? Yeah, sure. Would some people think you were crazy and you'd gotten this from some Reddit conspiracy theory? Probably, but you would still want to share that good news. The better the news, the more excited people generally are to share it. So why do we need, as Christians, our arms twisted when it comes to this greatest news, this treasure, this unsearchable riches of the gospel, the best possible news you could hear. In this letter to the Ephesians, Paul says it is by grace that he's even able to preach the gospel. This isn't some job that he got as a consolation prize or some punishment that he got because he'd been naughty before he became a Christian. No, this is grace offered him. It wasn't that Paul got the the award for most holy three years running and then predictably got the promotion to apostle, and now he does this work. No, this had been given to him when he deserved it in no way. He calls himself the last among the apostles, and here he calls himself less than the least of the saints. Quick aside there, is Paul giving us a little false humility? Less than the least of the saints. Doesn't he he have to kind of know that he's sort of a big shot? I mean, we would say, who's the greatest Christian of all time? Who's the greatest missionary? And people would say, well, maybe St. Paul. We wouldn't expect him to say he's the greatest because he's humble, but he'd probably say, I'm all right. I'm okay. What's all this? I'm the, the less than the least. I think it comes back to how enamored he is with the grace and glory of God. It reminds me of when I get in, in bed at night, I always take my cell phone and I bring up these like soothing sounds. I have this app that does, you know, all these things. And, and I'll, I'll be in the dark. My eyes are adjusted to the dark. And I turn on my phone and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's killing me. So I turn the, the brightness all the way down. As low as it will go. And I go, okay, there, I can, I can see that. And I pick, you know, the babbling brook or the, the rain on the window or something. And then in the morning, I wake up and I go, oh, I got to turn that sound off. And I pick up the phone and all I see is my reflection. I can't see anything. The light's just as bright coming off the screen, but now we got the sun streaming in the windows. It's, it's all bright all around. And I have to kind of get under the blanket and turn the brightness back up before I can do anything. Paul is not underestimating his own brightness. It's just that he is so in tune with the greatness of God and the the might of his power and the depth and, and breadth and width of his mercy and his grace that by comparison, his own righteousness, it looks like nothing. He's less than nothing, less than the least. And yet he's been given this wonderful grace because of who God is. And he doesn't stop at just receiving the mystery. We talked about this last week. He received it by revelation, as did the holy apostles and the prophets. No, he's got to communicate this. And this isn't just something that happens from the prophets and the holy apostles. You know, this isn't a a job for spiritual giants only. No, God's intent, we're told here, is that the mystery of the unsearchable riches of Christ would be made known, verse 10, through the church. Through the church. This is the Great Commission, right? This is plan A. You guys tell the world about me. What's plan B? No plan B. Just you guys. A handful of fishermen, tax collectors, 
uh, women of bad reputation, a woman who used to be filled with demons. We've got, I mean, we've just got this kind of motley crew of people, and, and Jesus looks at them and says, listen, I'm going to give you the Spirit, and it's going to go out like a wild fire, and it does. This is such good news that we get to be the bearers of such good news. That after millennia of drawing back from God in fear, and, and rightly so, after ages of every people, nation, and tribe knowing intrinsically that there is a God and that something separates us from that God, and you can see it when you study any nation or people or tribe, after countless sacrifices and offerings and rituals and, and now uh, vows by this one sacrifice of this one man, the intercession of Jesus Christ, now a way is open to approach the God who created all this, and to approach him boldly, to come into his presence with, as we read here, confidence and freedom. This is such good news. And then we learn that the way to do this is through faith. That's all right there in, good grief, how do I wind up in Galatians? In Ephesians 3, 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Such very good news. Now, how did all this happen? It didn't just fall into place. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is an eternal purpose. And in verse 9, he makes reference to a plan. He says, we are to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. There was a plan, and it's been hidden for ages, and now it will be made known. This is how a believer ought to look at history, by the way. The secular world looks at history and breaks it up basically by wars. Basically like this is how humans act when left to themselves. There's just fighting and killing. And so we, we, I remember, right, this is how we learned it. I, I think about what I learned in each grade about U.S. history or world history. Always broken up by here's a war and then some stuff happens and we learn a little about that. Then there's another war and then some stuff. And this, this kingdom got big and then they got destroyed. And then these people rose to power and then they tried to make a grab. And, and that's how we, it's just this, this continual marching of human excess and human greed and avarice and malice. That's how the world looks at history. The scriptures, however, tell a story of one people who exists throughout the world. The people whose kingdom has no borders, and even the walls that exist, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, have been crushed now by the work of Christ. A kingdom that will never come to an end. It can be summed up, I think, in the calendars of different peoples. For example, the Hebrew calendar always was, you start with uh, creation, and then you go forward. Forward one, I mean, where, where do you go before that, right? You start with creation, and they, they, they say, uh, starting in, I think, the, the 12th century, uh, the, the phrase uh, in Latin is anno mundi, right? The, the year of the world, such and such, 5,824 or something. And then you look at how the church reckons time. Instead of going to the very beginning or wherever we think that is and just going forward, we pick a point, we put a, a stake in the middle, and we say before that is B.C., before Christ. After that is Anadomine, the year of our Lord. Because when he came, something changed entirely. And what happened was the climax of God's plan, the climax of God's purpose had been fulfilled 
in him. And if I could change that, I would shift it just a little bit. And I wouldn't shift it back five years or six years so that where we say Christ was born is when he probably was. I would shift it ahead about 25 years. So that instead of having that point that separates everything before it from everything after it be the birth of Christ, it would be the cross. Because according to the scriptures, the cross is absolutely the climax of all of human history. All of salvation history. Which means that history has a point, a purpose. And that that meaningless chain of wars and empires and rise and fall and progress and then dark ages, all of that, it isn't really history. That's just a very cynical take on history. There is a purpose, and that purpose has been realized. Look in verse 11, it says past tense. This purpose has been realized in Christ Jesus, or in the NIV, it has been accomplished, which calls to mind the words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. And if it's effectively a finished work, then Paul being imprisoned cannot detract from it. Paul saying, I suffer for your glory, all of our little setbacks, everything in our lives that seem very big, and we say, look, at the, the culture's going in the wrong direction, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and all of this is falling apart. It cannot frustrate the plan of God. But our feeble human efforts can further it by announcing to the world this grace that's been given to us. We have, as the, the Church of Jesus Christ, both the privilege of discovering and proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Jesus. Now, I saved verse 10, even though it comes kind of in the middle, for last, because it's a doozy. And I don't know if you, if you think as you hear about the text about what it means, or if you're just kind of getting a broad overview, but I don't know what you thought when you heard, or what you thought as you've read the book of Ephesians in the past, when you hear that, that uh, the mystery is hidden for ages in God who created all things, is, is uh, brought to light, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'm not going to take you through every possibility of what that might mean. It would take forever. There's been so much ink spilled on this text. I'm going to tell you what I think it means. First of all, I think when we read rulers and authorities here, we're reading about the same thing uh, that's mentioned in, in chapter 1, verse 21. You may recall, uh, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named is Jesus. And, and when we talk about these rulers and authorities, we're talking about the same thing he's talking about in chapter 6, when he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness in high places. We're talking about spiritual beings here, spiritual authorities and powers. They are in heavenly places. Now, I want you to, if you have the ESV or another uh, translation that has the word places there, heavenly places, I want you to write a note. Don't cross things out in your Bible based on what I say, please. But I want you to write a note that says heavenlies. That's literally what it says. Get the word places or the idea of places out of there. We're not talking about a locale. The heavenlies. I like the way the NIV translates it. The heavenly realms. Because a realm can mean a kingdom, can be a human kingdom or some other kind of kingdom, or a domain of activity. And what we're talking about here is the heavenly realm. Most people view the world and everything that's happening around them in just one realm, the earthly realm. What I can see, that's it. If I can put it in a test tube and I can boil it up and I can write down the numbers and I can prove it, that exists. 
The apostle here is telling us that if we believe in Jesus, we will see another realm, the heavenly realm, and we will be active in it. I think a great illustration, a kind of analogy here would be the light spectrum, right? We have the spectrum of light. We have in the middle what we as humans can see, visible light, we call it. We should call it human visible light because there are animals that can see stuff on either side beyond what we can see. Fish and frogs and some snakes can see infrared light. Isn't that wild? And bees and cats and hedgehogs can see ultraviolet light. You ever wonder how you can not kill that, that bee? Oh, he sees all sorts of light coming his way that you can't even see. He knows what you're going to do before you do it. By the way, the only member of the animal kingdom that can see both infrared and ultraviolet light? Goldfish. No idea why they need that, but they've got it. But in the same way that there's all this going on, if you could see the infrared light now, I mean, it would blow our minds. And I, I'm hoping in, in eternity we get you know, that opportunity to see the full spectrum of light. But it's there, whether we can see it or not. And the heavenly realms is the same situation. This is how, by the way, we could be in, in chapter 1, seated with Christ in the heavenly, heavenly realms. Well, also we're here on earth. Because the heavenly realm is the, the spiritual world. And we are taking part in it because we're following Jesus. Con uh, complicating things a little bit is the idea that these cosmic powers in the heavenlies intersect with and are somehow closely associated and enmeshed with earthly powers and human institutions. You may remember reading Daniel 10. And when Daniel's praying and praying, and then the angel shows up to answer him, and he says, sorry, I got sidetracked. And he starts telling him about this massive war that's going on, light versus darkness, and how there's been a battle going on recently. That he was fighting against the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. And these seem to be spiritual beings. And then he, he was at kind of a stalemate, and then the archangel Michael, the chief prince of the host of heaven, came and helped him. And we read about the prince of Babylon and the kings of Babylon, and, and we go, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like it's talking about human beings, because it's not. In fact, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, we even read about the rulers of this age having helped to put Jesus to death, and it's possible this is talking similarly about heavenly beings, spiritual beings, in the heavenly realm. So what then does it mean? It's fun to speculate about all this stuff and think about what's going on in the spiritual world, but what does it mean when we read in verse 10 that this is our job, essentially, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? How, how, how does that help, and how do we do that? I think the answer is that by simply carrying the banner and standards of Christ before the enemy, by lifting high the cross of Jesus, we sap them of their will and power to some degree. There is victory in Jesus. We've sung that a time or two. I think a good illustration might be the 1936 Olympics. I don't know if uh, you've, you've read much about the Olympics, but 1936, they were in Berlin, so it was kind of a big deal. You read about this uh, as, as kind of an important milestone headed toward the war and that sort of thing. And there was a movement, should we not go? Should we, I mean, these guys are acting, once again, really sketchy, and we're not sure about Germany. And, and of course, Hitler's over here saying, oh, yeah, yes, Aryan master race, we will win all the gold medals. Uh, and so we went, and it didn't quite turn out like Hitler wanted uh, the star, 
of those Olympics, of course, was Jesse Owens. Not only an American, an African-American, that must have really sat well with Hitler. I heard a, a comedian once talking about what must that limo ride away from that event been like. After all the amped up, ah, we will dominate. Yeah, yeah. Didn't work out how you wanted, did it? What happened with Jesse Owens? He won four gold medals. 200-meter dash, he won the gold medal, set a world record. Second place, another African-American, Mac Robinson, who, by the way, older brother of Jackie Robinson, American hero, one of the greatest baseball players of all time. In that particular event, Germany didn't crack the top six with their silly little swastika flags and things. They weren't even part of the ceremonies there. The long jump, Jesse Owen wins the gold, sets a world record. There was a German who won the silver doing his little Nazi salute as they had their, their uh, medal ceremony, but he's a tier below, and his Nazi salute doesn't quite come up to the top of Mr. Owen's head. Oh, I wonder what Hitler was thinking then. 100-meter dash, Jesse Owens wins, once again, world record. It must have been getting a little boring at some point. In that case, second place, another African-American, future Congressman Ralph Metcalf. And then the 400-meter relay, those two incredible athletes, and then two white guys, two white Americans. Now we've got a team that really must have bothered Hitler to see them passing the baton and once again winning the gold medal and once again setting a world record. Now, of course, in 1936, we were further away than, certainly further back than we are now from reaching racial re reconciliation and, and racial justice. But to have that visual just paraded before these people who were saying, no, 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 we've got a master race, we've got a master plan. There's almost a prophecy in it, like this is what can happen when we reject that idea. This is what will happen as we more and more embrace one another. And I think that's a, a great illustration of what it means to take the death and resurrection of Christ and, and make it known before these heavenly realms, these rulers and authorities in dark places as well as light. By living out this mystery and proclaiming together this gospel, we disarm the spiritual enemies that are so effectively directing almost everything in our culture and world today. We have the opportunity to make a difference because the things that happen in the heavenly realms affect the world around us in human history. The focus of this book of Ephesians you're starting to see, I'm sure, is that the church is not a newly formed club that you can belong to and, and spend time in, and not even a new and improved religion, but an actual new humanity, which by its very existence reveals the mystery of God's total victory and reveals it not only to sinners, but to hostile spiritual powers. And never is the church being the church and doing that more than when she is proclaiming the gospel. This mystery that, according to verse 9, was hidden for ages, and now Paul will make known to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. This is our job as a church. We shine a light not just to expose the wickedness all around, but as a beacon to go out to those who've had it with the darkness. Again, in other words, what happens in heavenly realms has consequences on human life on earth. The context of all this, of course, is that the wall between Jew and Gentile, the wall of separation, has been crushed. And now a new humanity has been made. We were singing that song, Is He Worthy? And in it we were singing words from Revelation. I think of Revelation 5.9, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, 
For thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood a people from every tongue and tribe, people and nation. This is what, what's happening here. The knocking down of walls, the gathering together of all people around the banner of Christ. And as that happens, Satan's falling like lightning and his kingdom is drawing back and retreating. That's the picture that we see in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. And I want to point out one more word here in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Manifold. That means varied and many, right? Well, the Greek behind it actually means many colored. We might say kaleidoscopic, the kaleidoscopic wisdom. I think that's yet one more reason to avoid boring, simplistic, transactional presentations of the gospel. Here, you give them this prayer, you put the, the coin in the vending machine, and out comes salvation. Now, this is many colored. There's so much to this. We don't want a monochromatic faith. You know, like a, a dietitian would tell you, don't eat monochromatic meals if you can avoid it because one way to get all the different minerals and all the different things you need to be healthy is to, to try and get up. It doesn't work if you have Skittles, by the way. But all the different colors of the rainbow kind of represented here uh, in a natural way. And that's, that's what's, what we need, what's good for us. The church is many colored in many ways. When it comes to how we receive salvation and, and our standing before God, of course, we think of Galatians 3.28, that all these old categories have gone by the wayside. If we're talking about Jew and Gentile, slave or free, uh, male or female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. But in how we function and bring glory to God on earth, that variegated aspect is a strength unless we separate ourselves up into little monochromatic pods. And I'm not just talking about race or skin color, although certainly when we read Revelation 5, we see that ought to be represented in the church, that we ought to be a, a people of all nations, tribes, tongues, and, and uh, peoples. But I'm also talking about different cultures and backgrounds and personalities, sex, age, language, gifts, abilities. These things can either be the basis by which we build up more walls or the tools that we use to knock them down. And the rulers and authorities of darkness in high places, they want us to use them as the former, the basis for building up more walls, but the gospel demands that we do the latter. Think about what an insanely powerful witness to the truth of the gospel, this unity. This unity between Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, Scythian, all the different people who would have been so separate and so hostile to one another, what that would have been. And ask, do we have it now? And if we don't, are we cashing in essentially the greatest witness to the gospel that we could bring before the world and say, yeah, this is real? Tertullian, writing in about 195, A.D. 195, he, he wrote this thing called the Apologia, uh, and it was a, a polemic, an apology, basically a defense of the Christian faith. And, and answering certain lies and objections people had raised against it. And it contained philosophical and logical and theological arguments for Christianity. But most of all, he pointed at the Christian love that had become famous or, or infamous even, even among the critics of the faith who would say, look at how they love one another. That's the phrase that Tertullian uses. You know that you've said it even to your friend, you critic of Christianity. You've said, look at how they love one another. 
A little more than 150 years later, Emperor Julian, who hated Christianity, wrote to one of his pagan high priests these words, It is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and those Galileans, that's what he called Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. That the light is shining, but it's not shining on us because the church is out there showing the love of God to all people. They're, they're out there with the standard of the cross showing the way to salvation. And in the midst of all of that, they are bringing light where we are bringing darkness. And in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, Rodney Stark explains why Christianity grew so explosively in those first few centuries after Christ. He writes these words, In the midst of the squalor, misery, illness, and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. What a beautiful picture that is. Let me read that again. There's squalor, misery, illness, and anonymity. Man, a lot of that applies today, doesn't it? There are, the, the, the idea of being just an anonymous number floating around, that if anything, you have impersonal relationships over a device that, that you pull out of your pocket. Illness, I think there's a little of that going around at the moment too. Misery and squalor, people losing jobs, people hopeless. In the midst of all this, in the ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. Come here and we will not wag our finger at you and tell you you're the worst because you have this affiliation or this background. We won't give you the cold shoulder because you don't quite look like us or think like us or act like us. We will love you. We will point you to the cross of Jesus. We'll walk there with you week after week. And we will show you mercy because Christ has shown all of us grace and mercy. I think the book of Ephesians couldn't be more timely than, than I mean, we people say this about every book anytime they preach it, but when I read it, I think we need this now. We need this right now. We need to remember that what we see isn't all there is, and we need to remember that victory for the church looks like knocking down walls and gathering together around the cross of Jesus Christ so that we can show not only to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, but to people who are lost in the earthly realm, that Jesus is Lord, that His love has overcome, and that we can have salvation in Him and Him alone. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would be worthy of this calling. We pray that we would not think of it as a duty and be uh, reluctant and and drag our feet and think, how much of it do I have to do before I've shared the gospel enough today and I cannot feel guilty? Lord, that like Paul, we'd see it as a gift, an honor, a grace given to us that we don't deserve because we're the least of your people. That it would be an honor to, to share with people what was hidden for ages and now we get to proclaim the unsearchable riches that are in Christ Jesus. Lord, Give us that desire. Fill us with that zeal. Help us to not be willing to, to, with the world, put on our spiritual blinders and divide everyone up into segments and demographics and treat them all differently based on that. But Lord, let us take off those blinders and see the ultraviolet and the infrared, the spiritual world that's all around us, to see that all are one in Christ and all who are outside of Christ 
are those who are our mission field, that we should be out bringing the love, bringing the light, shining the light. Lord, let us never add to the darkness, the confusion, the hostility, the anger. Let us be your people in this world right now, right where you've placed us. In your holy name we pray. Amen.